0: Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens.
1: Hi everyone, welcome back. This episode, we're interviewing scholar S. Jonathan O'Donnell about their new book, Passing Orders, Demonology and Sovereignty in American Spiritual Warfare. Passing Orders introduces us to contemporary right-wing Christianity's engagement in spiritual warfare against the demons who stubbornly keep undermining God's organization of history and the world merely by existing. These demons are Jezebel, who stands in for queer communities and anything thought to be opposing the wholesome nuclear family, the Islamic Antichrist, who stands in for all of Islam, but also especially radical U.S. black political movements. And finally, the demon Leviathan, who is so dangerous because they become indiscernible from God in an eternal chaotic struggle to subvert divine sovereignty. These demons and the populations and subjectivities said to be under their sway inherently threaten right-wing white Christian dominion, over global empires and settler colonies. We talk about the role of these demons in contemporary politics and also possibilities for demonized groups to find solidarity and resistance together. As always, remember to review, like, subscribe, all the good things to help people find the podcast and to encourage us in our Sisyphean labors of rolling the stone of demonic content up the hill of our embattled impact schedules wow that metaphor really worked um anyway next episode we're back in our back in the meat and potatoes standard somewhat narrative history format that we take as we get into neoplatonism it's demons and why they matter for the medieval christian paradigms we'll be covering for the rest of this season thanks for listening thanks for supporting us and yeah hope you enjoy this hi welcome we're here with Jonathan O'Donnell author of Passing Orders, Demonology and Sovereignty in American Spiritual Warfare. So yeah, so Jonathan, welcome. It's, it's, it's thrilling to have an author on to talk about like a new, a recent work, 2021. Fordham University Press will obviously send all the links and your your Twitter handle and all the such in the, the episode description. But yeah, a hearty, hearty welcome to the infernal paradise of Seven Heads, Ten Horns.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. And sorry, Travis, for <laughs> interrupting you
2: there. Not at all. We are both so excited that you're joining us today. We I think I can speak for both of us that we got a real kick out of reading your book. It is it is not for the faint of heart, I will say. It is heavy lifting. And it's also a critical intervention in scholarship on demonology, on spirit warriors, and um, spiritual warfare. So I want to start out by just asking you what brought you to this project, and can you describe what it is that a spir- spirit warrior does? Let's just start with basics here. What are we talking about when we talk about spiritual warfare, and how, in the name of all things infernal, did you get into this amazing field?
0: <laughs> okay. Um. So I guess there's like a few angles to answer. I guess I'll will start with the basic of what's what, what spirit, spiritual warfare is. Um, spiritual warfare is a paradigm that is predominantly practiced today in kind of charismatic and Pentecostal forms of Christianity. Um, in which individuals use primarily prayer or other forms of kind of ritual practice. Um, and also political projects and material work we'll talk about that a bit later to combat the demonic um they understand demons as kind of underlying well not just demons but demons and angels as underlying conditioning the material world uh, ranging from everything from like individual sickness or trauma to systemic poverty to the rise and fall of nations um, essentially the spiritual reality underlies the material reality and the goal of these spiritual warriors is to use spiritual tools like prayer to intervene in the underlying spiritual reality and therefore reshape the material world accordingly um so that's i guess basically what spiritual warfare is yeah yeah sort of like um, like sort of
1: base superstructure you know being reversed a little bit there right? yeah
0: yeah it, 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 it uses a base. i mean i and i get this from uh, sean mcleod who's also written a book on spiritual warfare um who used who develops the kind of base superstructure metaphor for like looking at how spiritual warriors like conceptualize the world mm-hmm. um as for how i got into this uh There's a kind of professional answer, and there's a personal answer. Um, So I'll go with the professional one first, which is the, essentially, um, I started doing research into discourses of apocalypticism in the US War on Terror, um, as part of my PhD project uh, at, like, SOAS University of London. And as one of the tasks as a PhD student is you look for areas that haven't really been looked at before. You look, you try to develop new scholarship. And one of the things i would noticed repeatedly, kind of this was back in kind of 2010, 2015, um, was that demonology was an aspect of a lot of this apocalyptic discourse that was coming out of this particular era that just wasn't being talked about in the scholarship. Or when it was, it was very abstract in the in the sense of like there was a nebulous concept of evil at work and like processes of demonization maybe satan or the antichrist were mentioned as part of kind of a general apocalyptic narrative but it didn't really seem to do justice to the i guess the kind of plethora the the legion of demons that were being kind of evoked and invoked like in the literature that i was looking at um so that's kind of why i that's the professional answer for kind of why I ended up focusing on that and then that led me into kind of looking backwards at the kind of rise of this movement in the kind of late cold war era its relationship to cold war and post cold war geopolitics and etc the prof- the more personal answer is like and like how do I start with this um basically I've had like To put it bluntly, I've long had an affinity for demons and for looking at the demonic, like, as a, as a thing. I think, like, for, like, I know, like, a lot of, a lot of other queer people that I know of, like, tend to have a weird affinity for a mythical or folkloric or fantastical entity of some description and for me that was always the demonic for some inexplicable reason i'm not, not i mean i know why and we can get into that later uh, but i already had a kind of interest in in demons like as a as kind of figures within literature and pop culture and kind of society broadly and so and that that interest led me to kind of particularly with kind of a number of kind of growing political activist project projects, and my kind of growing interest in, in the the politics of demonization and dehumanization, led me to kind of join that pre-existing interest in the in the kind of, the demonic as part of popular culture and society with, um, this more kind of overt political evangelical reactionary political force that I was kind of analyzing.
1: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's certainly true of like a lot of intellectual work where you can see like in like a gap in in research but, like, mm-hmm. it's only, per- it's, like, you have to be compelled by the topic. And yeah. it's interesting, like, it's, like, from the other end of the looking glass, right, where it's, like, well, right, like, people are interested in goth or, like, gothic stuff or, or, or like, yeah, mm-hmm. like you were saying about, like, identifying with, with different mythologies and, like, you have, like, subcultures around, like, role-playing games or, you know, mm-hmm. black metal or all, all, all these things that are sort of, like, getting into, like, the quote-unquote pagan or, or the demonic. And then from the other end of the looking glass, it's, like, these people are channeling real demons and it's like it's i think it's it's really something it's like powerful to sort of track back and forth tack back and forth between those two perspectives mm-hmm. um which i see in it, the there, book.
0: there was there was an aspect like very early in my phd research it was very it was far more poli sci in its focus and far more like less focused on the demonic and like refocusing on that was very much part of like how they like, i got the project to come together like yeah. in the end
1: yeah yeah. And it's important, obviously, for projects like it's like it has to come together in terms of the material and has to come together like for you too, like to be like, why is it worth doing this? <laughs> and I think that that's that comes across. And you have you're able to sort of channel something like the creative passion around like what a positive appropriation of the demonic would mean. So, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of the method of the book, I, I was struck by the way that you read the books of the spirit warriors in the U.S., and I wondered as I was reading your your sort of analysis of their 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 positions, like was it important for you to take them seriously as theorists? Like in terms of how you related to them and their work?
0: Yeah, I it's kind of interesting because this kind of gets to a, a couple of a couple of issues I often deal with when I kind of present my research, like particularly at academic conferences, is usually it's with a certain amount of shock that it's received, uh, but there's also the inevitable question of, like, do these people really, really believe this? Like, or is it just, like, politics masquerading as, as religious practice? And it's, like, to some degree, it doesn't matter. Like, my sense as a religious studies scholar is that, like, these people are acting as if this is the way the world works, and therefore whether they truly, in their heart, like believe that this is the way the world works is immaterial to like the consequences that that, that um, enacting of belief does in the world. But like it is important to take these people seriously. Like I think there is a tendency and we'll kind of get on to I think later talking about the the nitty-gritty of of the way that spiritual warfare texts work, but they're often fairly ad hoc like they're not very systematic. Like they vary both within themselves and like definitely like between authors. Um but at the same time there is like there's a log there is a certain consistency and a certain through line that can be traced through a lot of them. And I think it's important to kind of look at these look at the way these people are conceptualizing the world and look at the way that their demonologies like function both in terms of individual authors but also as a movement um, that like needs to be taken seriously
2: that's actually yeah, something I think
1: was, yeah go ahead, go ahead go ahead
2: that's actually something that interested me too it also does, has to do with your methodology so i'm curious and you've you've explained to us about why it's important to take them seriously. And I think you've demonstrated that in the book very clearly, Um, pointing both to the differences between individual authors from time to time, as you talk about particular demons, for example, but also showing that there really is a lot of consistency across them. I wonder, I think because of my own training as a historian of Christianity, um, I would have thought about organizing and talking about different schools of thought within, you know what I'm saying? As another way to think about theorists. But I'm thinking uh, when Klaus and I talked about your citation practices and the way you use your sources, it was like um, right in between where you would cite I don't know um althaus reed for example then there would mm. also be in the same way you would cite these sources not really sort of going deeply into one or the other but your style seems to be this kind of imbrication of mm. theoretical sources as well as these um, sort of theological sources and that was really interesting to me do you want to say more did you did you hesitate about like ways to pull these things together
0: so it's kind of interesting cuz like it to a certain degree that just felt like the most natural way to write it for me um this is actually an interesting point because i've been brought up on this in other like peer reviews and things and articles that i've read where people have been like i don't think that these spiritual warfare texts should be in the bibliography like alongside other things for example they're like like you need to like have these in a separate in a separate bibliography the freak the freak
1: section of the bibliography
0: yeah essentially (laughs) like like so this is actually something it's kind of interesting because for me personally it was it was just the most natural way of of interweaving these and it was a way to bring out the tensions and the the way of theorizing the demonic that i think i kind of really wanted to perform in that text was like the way that these yeah, it, it, it felt natural. Like in a lot of ways, it wasn't a decision that I made. It was it was just part of the process.
1: I think it's also, I mean, like maybe we'll use this term advisedly, but like, I think it's also like sort of being a, a humanist on some level where you like have to get into like the worldviews and, and like sometimes people get policed for saying the word take ser- the phrase to say, take seriously too much in religious studies. It's like, we have to take this seriously. We have to take this seriously. Like there was kind of a, a blowback to that like 10 years ago or something. But like, you're not condescending. I, like, I think anyone reading this book would not mistake that you see this stuff as as dangerous and parts of systems of domination and oppression that have had world historical consequences. And at the same time, you don't belittle them or talk down to them. And I think that that's, that's like a valuable point. And, and yeah, I mean, this is to...
0: this is part of the broader issue of studying, like, again, like vi- violent texts, essentially, or, like texts from reactionary movements. Is there is like, like, how serious do you need to take them? Like, how, wh- what is a way of understanding them and getting inside them without justifying them and without like downplaying the the violence that these texts do and that the movements that they're part of do, like yeah it's a it's part of like that broader conversation about like religion and violence rather direct or systemic <laughs>
2: One feature of American political discourse is the perpetual complaint of division. It's a divided country. And in fact, that same complaint shows up in spiritual warfare theology, which I found totally fascinating. So just kind of on a personal level, what's it like spending serious time in this worldview? How do you feel like it has shaped both the project itself, um, but also you, and what it feels like to do this kind of scholarship? Um, what does it mean to study a worldview that you might, and I don't want to assume here, find detestable or dangerous or problematic? Uh,
0: it's difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that like simple, straightforward answer is it gets really hard and it gets really tough. and like, It's one of those things where, like, as much as I do like to take this seriously, and particularly in terms of its political consequences and its general ramifications, like, the slightly more absurd elements of it, like, do help sometimes. In, like, um, it's gonna last so in this book, but there are other ones. I've written elsewhere about, like, anti transhumanist apocalyptic conspiracies and spiritual warfare, and, like, other things with, like, that often have very strange claims about. Jesus fighting the Greek gods in the end times, for example. Which which is a literal thing that I have I, uncovered. I and like there's some degree to which like indulging in those like maybe slightly more like out there texts, like even within spiritual warfare, kind of helps to like offset the edge of some of the more grim um political, like and material consequences of a lot of the material. Um There is an extent to which also, like, the fact that I... Like, I talked a bit earlier about, like, the the affinity to, like, the demonic that I've always kind of felt, personally. And I think there is an extent to which being able to inhabit the demonic within these texts and, like, read them against themselves, like, is, is part of, like, what gets me through it. Because, like, when they're sitting there and they're complaining about how jezebel is winning for example with like the feminist queer agenda i'm just like yeah you go (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah so like there's this element to which like reading them against themselves like is like part of how i cope with the fact the material is so dark and like also to get back to the question that like travis asked earlier about citational practice like i think that interweaving of the primary sources and, like, what, for lack of a better word, the second resources, like, the theory, the theory, like, the queer theory, the, the critical race theory, the black studies, the decolonial criticism. Like, that interweaving is itself part of, like, my coping strategy, like, for lack of a better word. Like, being able to flip between, like deeply homophobic and transphobic like spiritual warfare texts and the kind of generative power of a lot of queer theory and trans theory that i i draw on like that that is part of the caving strategy like that that kind of flitting between them that ability to draw on one in order to kind of recoup my sensibilities and return to the front as it were um yeah
2: Jonathan, is there anything salvageable sort of drawing on what you were saying about this kind of occasional identification with some of the demons with Jezebel in particular? Would you say that there's something salvageable or interesting for radical queer communities in the demons um, that are that's generated by the literature from spirit warriors? You brought in, for example, um, queer theologian outhouse Reed. do you have uh, which seems like a, a, which is a constructive project that uses a, a slightly different sense of the word demonology, which we can talk about. <clears throat> Do you have a favorite demon? You mentioned Jezebel already. I mean, I am a fan. Um, and and then finally, this question is supposed to get at your critique of Adam Kotzko for gesturing toward universalism as a way past carceral christianity with your theorists like sexton you encourage people who have been demonized to lean into it um, and find unexpected resources in the demonic archives so is there something generative there would you say and does it have anything to do with that um, sense of identification Mm -hmm. with the other this sympathy for the devil if you will
0: yeah i mean i mean for me yes like and like this partly comes out of my personal kind of love slash commitment to slash, like, the, the nourishment I find in what might be seen as the kind of anti-normative strain of queer theory. Like, the, the, the strain that comes out of people like, like Lee Adelman's No Future, for example, being a kind of opposite point, but also, like, more recent text as well. And, like, that kind of embrace of of i'm trying to like this this kind of touches on a whole number of things so i guess i'll guess just favorite demon all of them slash you know it it depends on my mood um jezebel definitely like leviathan was one in the text that i felt like a very strong affinity for and like as as look as weird as leviathan can be with all of their like polyvalent usages Mm -hmm. Hard to pin um, down. Hard to pin down. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm currently working on stuff to do with the Watchers and the Nephilim as well, oh, yeah. um, which I know you've talked about on the podcast before. And, like, I don't, there's something about Azazel teaching everybody Warcraft <laughs> weapons, but also how to look fierce as well. <laughs> like, is yeah. just, like, like I just, I just imagine him coming down and just turning everyone into an army of warrior drag queens like and then and like the angels in heaven just being like like god you, you, you see what's going on down there this is not good um i'm <laughs> um, like yeah but like so it, it kind of varies it depends on my mood like which which demon is kind of my favorite um i'd say like they they all have they all have appeals to me depending on depending on what i'm kind of working with them for and and that kind of, I guess, gets to one of the things that I do in the book, which is that I kind of use different demonic figures to look at different patterns of demonization and different, like, struggles and different, um, I guess, ways of working through, like, with, with and through the demonic Um
2: I just wanted to point to your stroke of brilliance among many to use they, them pronouns for Leviathan. I I thought it worked so well, it was so brilliant. It's not there in the sources in a kind of literal sense that mm. that I could tell, but it captures the plurality and singularity in that um, interplay mm. of who Leviathan really is that felt super um okay. sort of on the nose and I, I enjoyed it a lot
0: i i i'm glad like that that was a, that was actually a decision i that was a conscious decision that i made like halfway through writing the chapter and i basically went back and like edited all the pronouns that i'd used <laughs>
3: <laughs> also it's like it totally that, like, fair also yeah, the like three total... <laughs> the,
0: yeah also the three demonic figures that i talk about in the book are all gendered differently and that that was a conscious decision like, the Antichrist is he, Jezebel is she, and Leviathan right. is they. Like, fairly right. like consistently. Um, yeah. And th- that was a conscious choice. Um, I'm trying to think, like, there was something... There's, there was somewhere I was going, but I, my train of thought has been lost slightly. But to talk about... I guess I'll talk about the Kotzko like my 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 one and I will I will say that I think this is an issue that he's that Adam Kotzko somewhat resolves in the sequel text which is neoliberalism's demons uh, which I think like in its ending has a very different orientation for like where liberation is trying to come from um essentially like my one of my big issues with the prince of this world which is his first book is the way towards the end he returns to that that project of universal salvation that comes out of kind of the early strains of christian theology and like i get why he does that like it's not like
1: and and just to like to jump in on that i mean like like the sources for universalism like like they're not it's 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 not a happy, peaceful ending for everyone. Like in, in mm. most in like origin at his most generous, it's like, Oh, like Satan kind of just like runs out of gas and submits. And then he's like, but I never said that. You know? You're like, <laughs> <"What?"> <laughs> So yeah. even uni- universalism is itself like, so I mm. like, I'll, I'll let you like say what your critique of this mm. was, but like, right. Like it's hardly a benign arrangement. Between yeah. equal parties.
0: Right? And like and I I do think that actually kind of gets to what my critique was, even though like like I'm not I'm not a theologian, I'm and I'm not a history of theology. So like the nuances of the actual like universalist claim in um in origin, you're you're much better at speaking to that than I am. But like framed within a contemporary political context, which is kind of how Kotzko like ends up ends up framing it, is like what does universal salvation actually look like when you materially apply it to like the world we live in today? And like it's essentially it essentially comes down to ultimately ends up as a project of assimilation. Like yeah, everybody yeah. everybody gets like everybody gets to be part of the holy city and it's all great and lovely, but what if what if what if the system itself is broken? Like what if what if inclusion within the system is not actually like and what if you what if you don't want to be included in the system like what if what if there is alternative possibilities and things that like could be charted and i think this kind of gets to part of my general approach to the demonic and like part of why i have a strong affinity for it but also part of the way that i talk about power and sovereignty in the book which is that like For me, the demonic is always... It's always a subject position, both in the sense that it's a position of subjectivity, but it's a position of subjection. It's a position from which, like, you are always subjected to power. And, like, the identity of demons, and, like, of the devil specifically, but, like, of demons generally, is one in which their subjectivity as demons and their identity as demons, like, emerges through that experience of subjection, like, to power. Um... And that power is omnipotent and it is omnipresent because it's, it's, it's the divine it's, it's divine authority. And so you're faced with, if you to take seriously and to think through the subjectivity of the demonic is to think through a position of being hopelessly enmeshed within omnipresent and potentially omnipotent systems of power, which you are called to fight against ceaselessly and endlessly Possibly without the hope of victory, like "abandon hope, or ye who enter here," as the as the line. And develop. it's there in
1: it's there in Milton too. I, I was just mm. revisiting Book One of, of Paradise Lost, and there is a sense of we're never going to win, but we just, to, we just have to we just have to we just have to mess with this as much as we can for as long as we can. <laughs>
3: yeah, uh, like shades of and,
2: Ukraine and, right now. Yikes!
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, for me, like the demonic in that respect became a way to think through like the way we exist today in like there is no outside of the system essentially like kind of in, in the world we live in mm. like whether that's yeah. capitalism or white supremacy or like queer phobia or like all but, of or these... he- here
1: in the united states uh, settler colonialism you know settler yeah. colonialism
0: yeah Oh, but like you know, even without settler colonialism, like empire broadly, like uh, the, em- yeah. the empire is global. Like there is no, there is no outside of empire. Um, like however you conceptualize, and like it, it inflicts differently in different places. But like, yeah. Yeah. essentially, like thinking through the demonic and thinking through the demonic's relationship to futility, um, and to the capacity to fight without hope of victory, like became a way for me to think through like our own subjectivities, like in in omnipresent systems of power that are asymmetrically applied, but that are still applied across the board. Like we're we're all within power, even though it inflects upon us differently, based on like the degrees and the nature of our demonizations.
1: Yeah, that's 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 a really elegant answer. I'm I'm trying to figure out where we should go from here. (laughs) Just like very simply, and Travis, I think this was your question, but like how when we're talking about uh, the spirit warriors, spiritual warriors, how representative are they of of Christianity of the, of of the evangelical movement, charismatic mm. movement? Like, is this is this something that is becoming steadily normalized? Is this an avant-garde of a kind of right-wing spirituality? Like, how should we how should we think of the representation of these views, or how representative they are of of mm. like sort of Christian Protestant views more generally?
0: I think. I think spiritual warfare is a lot more prevalent than I think a lot of people want to admit, um, and including like main mainline and mainstream evangelicals who like kind of want to, I think ignore maybe ignore its presence like within within the movement. It's kind of difficult to get numbers, specifically, though, because generally speaking, these are people who operate in their own networks, but they're also cross-denominational. Like, they exist in all kind of denominations of both US, but also global Christianity. It's worth noting that the Pentecostal charismatic mode of which this is a part, like, is growing rapidly across the globe the, 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 the
1: fastest growing right is the, the, yeah I it,
0: but uh, I, th- I think it might be the only form of christianity that's actually that's growing, growing as yeah. opposed to like static or shrinking yeah
3: um
0: but like i think like within the u.s it like it's also it's a lot more widespread than people would like to think um like its views are and like this kind of gets back to the fact that its views are very like unsystematic and very kind of ad hoc a lot of the times. So there's like often not necessarily much cohesion between these groups. Uh, but it's also worth noting that this has become a point of commonality, like not just within Protestant denominations, but also more broadly. Like one can mm. point, for example, to the, the Jericho March that happened in Washington on um, December 12th of like 2020, like shortly before mm. Biden's inauguration which brought together evangelicals, Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox practitioners, like, all around a kind of reactionary conservative political agenda, but all practicing spiritual warfare, like, together, mm. like, in the U.S. capital. Right. And so you have, the, you have it as this basis for kind of these broad affiliations that's also, I think, growing in grassroots, like, support and, and paradigms.
1: And that that makes that makes intuitive sense because like it's not just oh you have to like sign a contract and you know commit to these certain views to be a part of this like mm. right like I always like I'm teaching classes on the history of theology and like there's never a time in which Christianity or theology is not political like it, it it's so like those so, so so using theology politically and using spiritual practice politically like it's it's not as it's not as like uh as, as exotic as, as one might, as one might think just, just by like sort of looking at some like YouTube shock remixes of like people of charismatic preachers, like doing like, you know, God knows what, you know? And, and I think, I think for me, that's the point is that like it may seem like a very niche thing, but it, it does represent tendencies across the tradition. And I think, I think that's right. Um, Do you want to do the next one, Travis, for terms of thinking about like genre and because I think this is something we're talking about, like how representative this stuff is or like what kind of what kind of voice and what kind of what kind of how we should take these 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 questions. So, yeah, maybe maybe jump in a question for.
2: Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about some of this, but how would how should we think about genre in terms of some of these sources, um, particularly with the claims that they make that can feel exaggerated. Were most of the primary sources that you are reading written in a similar genre, would you say? As you look across them, the main thinkers that you're drawing from, we think, I think from, (laughs) Klaus and I, working as historians of Christian thought, um, wonder about genres like homiletics um, or occasional letters, on the one hand, versus what we might call systematic theology. Um, And here do you see an affinity to kind of translate for us what this might look like. Um, This is important for us because it helps us understand how we're meant to read and understand the differences between these particular texts and how we understand the ways they don't line up sometimes. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, And also because if you think of a kind of normy Augustinian, Mm -hmm. Christian theology, some of the claims that the sources make uh, seem to us related to classical forms of heresy. Not that we're interested in roasting them for that um, (laughs) as, as a problem, but it seems um, in the broader evangelical world, in the broader charismatic world, like that would raise some eyebrows. Um, so what do you, what do you think about these, these questions of genre and how we read um, just to engage that a little bit deeper?
0: Yeah. Genre is a weird, really interesting thing with spiritual warfare manuals in general. Like they're definitely closer to, I think, homiletics and systematic theology um, in terms of like generally, but like, a lot of them fit very neatly into what might just be termed the self-help genre of literature. Yeah, for example. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I general, I generally think of spiritual warfare texts as falling across a broad spec, like genre spectrum. Where on the one hand you have what are essentially kind of pure self-help texts with a uh, with a kind of, I guess, a demonological bent. So it'll be like you're having problems in your life or your marriage or your church or with your family. Um, the problem is demons. Um, here, here, oh, are, here are 12 steps to, like, you know, rededicating your life to Jesus and exercising the, the demons that are, like, delivering your life from demons on a very personal level. On the other end, you'll have what might be seen as more kind of conspiratorial or, like, conspiracist-style texts that are concerned with, like, world politics and like ideas of like quote unquote globalism with all of its anti-semitic undertones and very but they'll be concerned with like national or global politics for example But, but both of these texts will be working on the fundamental assumption of that like underlying spiritual reality that's like conditioning the material world whether it's on this kind of very personal like intimate level or whether it's like on the level of grand politics And then, like, you'll have a bunch of texts that will kind of fall somewhere between these piles with, like, where they'll be tying, like, the more personal, like, into these kind of grand political aspects or they'll be alluding to them, but they won't have much focus on them. Um, I would say the majority of texts, like, fall more closely towards the kind of self-help end of the the spectrum, like, by and large. Um, But then you'll get other texts that will be essentially like almost like pure conspiracy texts like they'll be all about like the deep state or like you know like the the deep state, the globalist agenda, like various like you know NATO organizations that are like plotting the downfall of America and then like you'll get through like eleven, twelve chapters of like a thirteen or fourteen chapter book of this. And then, like, one of the final ones will be, like, the spiritual dimension. And it will reveal to you that, like, actually it was all demons all along. Like, <laughs> underneath the surface. Um, so you'll get this kind of... And it's kind of interesting because I think fundamentally these questions of genre and this spectrum of genre is about audience. So, like, on the one hand, you'll have texts that are written primarily for evangelical other evangelicals. And it will be about convincing the reader that demons are real and that demons, like, have an impact, like, on your day-to-day life. But they'll be written, like, fundamentally for people who are already Christians and already often, like, evangelical Christians. And they will be trying to inaugurate them into the realities of the demonic and the realities of spiritual warfare. Whereas, like, the more like the more conspiracy-style sects that I said, like, they're primarily organized towards, like, a conspiracy theory audience like maybe even not non-christian conspiracy theory audience or like a christianity inclined one for example and then the the reveal of the demonic then comes as part of a like oh actually there's this other thing going on like behind this world you, you've already accepted so like in both cases they're about like meeting the kind of meet, trying to meet the audience where they're at and then like inaugurating them into this kind of broader like demonological worldview
1: no that that makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of sense um and i think some of the like what your answer was was pointing to there uh is like kind of gets at what i understand to be like one of the major conceptual interventions of the book which is this uh concept of orthotaxy versus orthodoxy or orthopraxy and we were talking about like how to sort of help introduce this concept to listeners and you know it, it goes beyond right like an assumption that it's a well-founded assumption by like people who are progressive whether they're christian or religious mm-hmm. or, you know or, or, or not or, or just identify as secular <laughs> like people understand that like conservative christianity and its politics is like deeply patriarchal and mm-hmm. racist on like a cosmic and like ideological level as well as its practice so like when you're talking about orthotaxy which is something distinct from orthodoxy mm. and orthopraxy like what does your intervention with this concept bring to
0: that conversation that wasn't there before hmm. i'm like oh i have to justify myself now <laughs> no um so like the i formulated the concept of orthotaxy like i guess regarding it partly was a reaction to the the kind of ad hoc or unsystematic nature of the text that i was yeah. looking
3: at yeah, yeah which the is point. that
0: there is, and we can kind of talk about like, maybe not like secular, particularly like secular discussions of um, these kind of right wing conservative forms of Christianity. Is that there will often be attempts at like hypocrisy, like hypocrisy blaming, yeah. basically. No, yeah, I mean, yeah. There'll be the sense that like, oh, these people say this and then they do this and right. they don't right. really right. believe in it or they don't, you know, they're not really practicing what they're preaching. And it's like, but that's not really the point, like, in a right. lot of ways. Um, so the notion of orthotaxy, which is, I guess, loosely translated, like, correct or proper, like, order or arrangement yes. or, like, however you kind of, taxo- I mean, it's related to taxonomy. It was essentially a way in which I looked at, okay, what matters here is the system, the broader system that is being upheld by these people and by these texts like both like in terms of the kind of cosmic order but also in terms of its kind of political ramifications in terms of like kind of settler colonialism and white supremacy and patriarchy and all of that um but the parts within that whether the practices or the beliefs even are adaptive and change like there might be notions of right belief, but the right beliefs can also fluctuate depending on the um, moment. And and you see this with, like even within the demonologies, for example, you'll see writers who in later texts will be like, like uh, one of the authors I talk about, Jennifer LeClaire, for example, who I talk about extensively in the Jezebel chapter, is an example of this in that one of her later books, she's like, oh, in my earlier works, I thought everything was Jezebel and witchcraft. And, like, now I've kind of come around and I see, like, there are more demons at work. Now. <laughs> right, um, but yeah. there's this element to which, like, the demonological landscape and, like, the general beliefs of what is going on are changeable and fluctuating and adaptive. And they, they alter across time. And as do practices, like, certain forms of prayer, like, might be more or less effective or more or less emphasize depending on the author or like the efficacy of political practices for example so you know um and the concept of orthotaxy allowed me to kind of be like okay what matters is the totality and the holistic the holisticness of the system that is being upheld by these individual beliefs and practices the individual beliefs and practices themselves like yeah they there are limits to which they'll stretch but they will fundamentally like they're fundamentally kind of changeable as long as the overarching system is maintained like through like right, right. like between the changes um right, right and i think this like i think in general like even beyond spiritual warfare like this is a good way of looking at kind of reaction reforms of of religious and political practice in general and that it's like it's not about necessarily about adherence to the to specific beliefs or even specific practices, it's about maintaining the integrity of a system, um, that has been established as good or divine or necessary, or you know, yeah. however, these people want yeah. to conceptualize it. Um, in which like beliefs and practices are just constituent parts, like,
1: yeah, yeah, the 100%. And that makes total sense. And for me, like, uh, like that really came home when I thought about the ways. That maybe someone who has a particular view on immigration in the United States will casually refer to migrant workers as illegals, mm. like this sense like there's a there's a right side of the of the border wall and there's a wrong side, and like mm. your position inside the wall you talk about paradise a lot in this book and like mm. how par like the sort of erection of paradise is like this imperial project, and like this the, the walls of paradise, United States figured as as a, as a as a paradise like mm. like it's about organizing. Right. Like systems bodies and like, of course, and of course, geography is also like the yeah. key, a key index here or key axis of, of organization. Um, so yeah, in terms of like the ways that <clears throat> that uh, these systems are lo- like linked to legality. Mm. Um, the incontestability is the attribute you deem as one of the key features of orthotaxy that it rests mm. on the incontestability of this organization of the world and, and people and, and everything in it. Um, so yeah, like the idea that like, right. And this is something we break our heads on in this podcast all the time. If, if Jesus beat the devil, then like, why is the devil still a problem for, for many Christian theologians? And you, you quoted this, this one spirit warriors being like, well, the, the, the Satan's out on bail like this like very law and order like yeah. orthotaxy. like the order is like the is like such a key part i think you're you're so right that it's not just about spiritual warfare but it's about it's about reactionary movements in general thinking about order this way mm.
0: yeah and like i do think like the qualities of orthotaxy that I identify in the book are like integrity and contestability and inevitability and Admittedly that that was often so I could just have three words starting with in that went together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but like um it's integ it's it, what what it, like just to kind of break those down quickly, like integrity is both this aspect of kind of moral purity or like blamelessness, but also like wholeness or cohesion. Like it's integral both in a kind of moral but also in a I guess a bodily sense. Um, it's incontestable because it is it holds the the right like it is it is sovereign it is the arbiter of, of sovereign will um all other forms of being and belonging are invalid simply by diverging from it and like lastly it's it's inevitable like there's this assumption that it is always going to win um even if and like this ties into the kind of apocalyptic angle of it like even if it seems that, they're not going to win. Like, they will win in the end. There's this assumption. But as a result of that, and I think this is important when you're looking at, like, patterns of, of, of queer and transphobia in the UK as well, but, all I mean, in the UK and the US, but, like, also just, like, the invalidation of alternative political projects, the idea that, like, alternative, alternative ways of, of being and organizing society are, like, unsustainable by default is, like... A claim to inevitability is both a claim that you will inevitably win, but then also that you are—you then have to kind of materially ensure that nobody else does. Right, like, right. like once you once you've determined that a group or an individual has no future, like you make that you make that reality for them, Absolutely. like with your power. Yeah um right. and and then you and then you use their failure as like a claim that they are always going to fail like a priori right. it's like always it's a big um, circle it's a big circle right it's just like mutually yeah, yeah right. um yeah. There, there are i will say that there are other possible like aspects of orthodoxy that i don't analyze in the book that could be drawn out from other other like reactionary movements or other systems so like i'm not saying that those three are like the only key features sure. they're just sure. like they're the ones that i think are essential to how it operates like in the spiritual warfare discourses that i'm analyzing although I, i'm guessing a lot of them will be translatable like broadly um
1: and for me it was interesting like this book is so much about the right uh, in terms of the attributes of orthodoxy uh, integrity was the one that you mentioned uh mm. recently and I, I, it was interesting to me that you didn't talk about fascism because that sort of idea of, like, an organic whole, like, bound together in the truth and destiny of a people, mm. you know, like, that's, like, that, that's yeah. more relativized in fascism and fascistic ideologies. But, like, the, like there is obviously mm. a Christian version of fascism that sort yeah. of blends together that, like, we have to be, it's not just about being unified. Like, we have to be, I think, one of your spirit warriors, like, to be unified in the truth. Right. And, yeah. and for, I was and I, you know, this isn't a criticism, but it just to me, I I see integrity and I've just been lecturing on fascism. I'm like, this sounds like fascism, baby. You know? yeah, <laughs> like yeah. A... This,
0: this is an aspect that I, I think this is one of the actual key weaknesses of the book is I kind of wish I'd more explicitly tied what I was talking about to fascism broadly, because I think there's a lot of aspects um, that tie into the broader fascist project, like both the both the kind of individual aspects but also i mean like like what is like the the key fascist construction of the enemy is that the enemy is both weak and strong and like like what is the devil if not archetypal of that oh, yeah. like of course yeah w- always already defeated and yet somehow like a threat to to like salvation and possibly world order like <laughs> It's, right. And like,
1: and of course I remember like being a student and like as a master student and and mm-hmm. getting into Nazi rhetoric and like seeing that with the, the threat of the Jews where it's like, it's like a world historical threat and yet they have to be pathetic at the same time. And you're like, wait, and like this goes back to why orthodox is a good, a good, you know, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be subject to like that sort of like, oh, you're contradicting yourself kind of critique. It's like people live in the contradictions, like the contradictions mm-hmm. aren't a problem. Like people dwell and need the contradictions for the whole thing to work and, and like mm-hmm. it, at the ideological level. Um so yeah, that's that that was that really resonates for me.
2: Great. So I was wondering about thinking about Spiritual warfare as a kind of system and what that system might require, particularly in terms of settler colonialism, which you talk about at several different in several different chapters, and neo-colonial projects. Um, is it true that we might understand spiritual warfare to need those particular systems, um, or is there something more malleable going on in terms of what is? Um, what kind of systems rep- represent um, evil forces in the world? Um, is that right? If it is, what do you think accounts for the necessity of these forces? And how might this be distinct from a theme that Klaus and I often discuss when we think about Christian theological, especially historical systems, um, as needing a kind of needing evil um, in order to undergird the ontology of the good? You can't have good without evil, if you will.
0: Um, OK. So, I think this is actually, particularly regarding spiritual warfare, this is slightly a complicated issue because of the way that it's kind of global in its instantiation. Like, I would say that within the United States, it relies on a settler-colonial paradigm. Like, um, and, and this is partly the geographical specificity of the book, is the book is specifically about like spiritual warfare within the United States and within like the general structure of US empire in the sense of US discourse about like the foreign, quote unquote. Um I think it's a slightly thornier issue when you're looking at the practice of spiritual warfare like in the global south, for example, or like um in Asia and like in various other places that are that are outside of a settler colonial context um whether there's a kind of innate neo-colonial paradigm to it will probably depend entirely on your views on missionary work in general and whether whether missions and conversion practice are inherently colonial or not um right if 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 yes then yes if no then debate basically right um and, like, I think this, this kind of gets to Travis's point, I think, about the malleability of it. In that I think, like, there's an aspect to which spiritual warfare will probably adapt itself to the broader systems of dehumanization and power that exist within within the polities, within the, co- the geographical context in which it's being mobilized. Um, like... Within the US paradigm it's complicated because not only is the US a settler colonial state, um, but like even in its global context, there is a constant referring back to the US like as a kind of bastion or site of kind of goodness and and kind of like and, and of and like the right sort of Christianity, essentially. Um, you saw this, for example, during like Trump's presidency or not not Trump's presidency, but during the 2016 election specifically, where you did have like, global networks of spiritual warriors from like, all over the world, like collectively praying for his victory, mm-hmm. because the idea was that the the kind of structural transformation of the United States in accordance with with a notion of divine will, which they would kind of constructed as instantiated in Trump. Um, for you know more or less cohesive reasons um would then like transform the global paradigm so there's this like centering of the u.s which i think does give it this kind of underlying settler colonial valence but at the same time i think specifically in um a like non-us context it's a lot more complicated a good example of this, actually, I recently I wrote an article a couple of years ago because I lived in Japan for a few years. And one of the things I did when I was there is that I looked at spiritual warfare discourse in Japan and I wrote an article on a particular like Japanese spiritual warrior um, who had a really complicated history because he was like he was the son of evangelical. He was a son of ev- Japanese evangelicals who had been converted during the U.S. occupation of Japan um like after world war ii and he had this quasi reverence for the united states kind of as this source of both his christianity but because also it was how his parents got together kind of his his literal origins like as an individual um and he was also plugged into these like spiritual warfare networks with people like peter wagner and cindy jacobs these kind of early third wave groups um but there was also a shift that happened, like, across his text, because I, I read like several of his books, and there was a shift that happened particularly post-9-11 with the positioning of the United States, uh, where it shifted from being this source of like pure goodness to this far more ambivalent um, force. Um and it was really interesting in how he framed it because he ended up shifting from and this he was kind of drawing more on the kind of conspiratorial elements here, like he shifted from coding the U.S. as this evangelical Christian hub to seeing it as kind of possessed by the spirit of Freemasonry, for example, uh, which he tied back to the kind of Freemason, the Masonic, like, founding fathers and the the kind of early, early discourse of Freemasonry in America. And then he, so he created this kind of polarity in which the U.S. was both good in its Christianity, but also all the bad parts of kind of U.S. imperialism and like U.S. empire and like the the kind of global violence that it was enacting, could be then accredited to this kind of contravening spirit, like demonic spirit of Freemasonry that kind of was also holding sway over America and was also American.
1: That, um, wow, that that totally reminds <laughs> me of like these debates on the intellectual right in political theology. Uh, or in just political philosophy about like the the true founding of of the United States or America mm. is it like was it like was it the declaration was it mm. was it the, the 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 Mayflower compact when you know, these Christians were, de- you know, this is yeah. Wilmar Kendall, like these are Christians, like, and they're, you know, they're sort of uh, deliberating under God. And that's what it means to be American in its essence. Mm. All that shit about like rights and, you know, universalism and social contract theory, like that's mm. all a perverse accretion onto the pure founding, which is in like, pr- mm. like wasps being super christian and and theocrats and stuff so like that kind of rhymes with what you're saying about this japanese
0: spirit there 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 is this really interesting there's there's a very fringe um one of the authors i talk about in the book is this guy called thomas horn who's like fairly fringe he he's the leader of a very small coterie of like dedicated spiritual warfare authors based in missouri who write a lot about like transhumanism and globalist conspiracies and that kind of aspect um but in one of his texts I found this really interesting element that kind of points to that, which is basically he has this notion of the US both as a Christian nation, but also as kind of founded in this like demonic nature of Freemasonry that he associates with the founders and with like essentially the formation of the United States like as a political project as opposed to as like a missionary project. Um and these kind of exist at cross tensions in his work and he doesn't actually quite resolve the fact that he's essentially constructing two distinct identities and, and narratives for the united states like as an entity but one of the things that like comes out of this is this really interesting tension where he has this idea that the us as a political institution is basically founded by demonological freemasons for the purpose of bringing about the antichrist essentially <laughs> So, like, the U.S. is, like, is an inherently evil institution, like, within this narrative. But also, he believes that the U.S. is a Christian nation and, like, has this dedication towards this particular form of, of particularly reactionary Christianity. Right. And the tension, the way this tension is resolved and the way that it plays out is this idea that basically the U.S. is kind of destined for this demonological role. But, like, it's kind of like a Schmittian notion of the catacomb, almost, in that, like, this kind of Christian nature of the U.S. keeps kind of intervening and, like, holding back this, like, demonologic, this demonic future for the United States. But what this ends up happening is essentially this construction of America—he doesn't intend this, but, like, this construction of America as a Christian nation in which its Christianity is not an innate quality— But it is rather a political project that has to be constantly instantiated again and again to, like, basically curtail this demonological idea of the United States, which, of course, for him is associated with, like, multiculturalism and plurality and, like, democracy, essentially. Um, And so what you end up with is this tension where it's like, yeah, the US is not a Christian nation, but the project to make it such is a necessary is basically this necessary project of constantly curtailing this like demonic difference that is constantly trying to assert itself like through the united states as a political institution and which then has to be constantly held in check and held back by um through the reactionary force of of evangelical christianity essentially
1: (laughs) right and i think this gets us into like what i saw as one of the big arguments and we both saw as one of the big arguments of this book was that like orthodoxy presents you were talking about difference, right? The problem of different, like, right. This is the problem with like integrity is being threatened, right? The problem of demonized non-beings, whether they're like native inhabitants of this continent, the queer, the paradigmatic queer person, the paradigmatic black Muslim person, like all of these like threatening otherized subjects, they have to be dangerous. They have to have their own like pseudo orders. the The title of the book's passing orders. Like they have to have like a kind of more or less complicated, uh, organizational system for destroying truth justice in the american way or some shit right um but they also have to be they have to be both dangerous and we talked about this before they be dangerous and ephemeral um and it seems like a main claim of the book is that these ontologically lacking figures who like who stand in for whole populations right uh, like they're like they are presented as as divergent different lacking and yet, the whole system doesn't work without them. Like they're like the fuel that that keeps the whole demonological project going, the orthotaxy going. Like orthotaxy needs its otherized things, or else like what what does it have? And I was just like wondering, like um like if is that a right? Is that is that is that correct? Is that sort of a main claim of the book that like the eternal system needs the the eternal system ends up like found like in, in its foundation like needing the uh the sort of like temporary passing things like they're actually foundational to what's supposed to be an internal an eternal system is that is that is that right
0: <laughs> yeah yeah That that's definitely like the system like requires demons to function and yeah. it, it produces demons in order to function and this is like i think part of the way that like one of the things with with the image of paradise and paradise's empire in like and the walls of it is that the walls of the walls of paradise are never entirely static. They they move. They expand. They incorporate. Like, but the thing is, like, when when you encounter the walls of paradise, you are, you can be assimilated and you can be tamed and you can be part of like the the menagerie of the rural garden of sovereign power. Or you can be, or you can be rendered into the mortar of its walls and the mulch for its gardens. But like, either True. way, it will incorporate wow. you. Yeah. Um.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that, I thought that was, I this, you know, I learned things on every page of this book. But like that point from Bruce Lincoln about paradise as an imperial project, like that seemed to me like a really sort of key insight that you were like expand, mm. building on, and expanding on. Um, and I, I, know this is like the last question on our little outline thing, but like, uh, I think I'll just jump to it because I think we're sort of, we're sort of there a little bit, not that we're, the, the thing's over, but yeah, you know what I'm saying? Mm. The book ends memorably with the line that communities resisting orthotaxy should or do strive to construct worlds that are quote, not just without paradise, but in which paradise has become impossible. Paradise in the book is associated with the beginning of humanity, projects of empire building, and also like the end of time when everything's restored to its proper order. Mm. Like, how hard is it to exercise the quest for paradise from our political imaginations? Um, and, like, I was thinking about when you were writing about paradise, it really brought to mind, like, we're, like, you know, we're living in, like, coronavirus. We're, like, we're living in mm. climate change. Like, these huge, like, almost unthinkable system-changing things. And I think of, like, the the tech bros and the billionaires building their bunkers in, like, Wyoming. And, um, and mm. like, they sort of trying to create these little, like... These, we read katherine keller's book on the apocalypse recently and like how like she has like one of these one of these possible futures is like these balkanized elite colonies where they're like they're dystopian paradises for like the elite uh and like mm-hmm. that really like what you were writing really resonated with that for me and really connected with those those sort of ideas of like the problems of paradise like the violence of this idea of paradise
0: yeah i mean that, that's like sorry it was, it was great just listening to you <laughs> like, <laughs> riff, off, riff off my book there um for me like for me the question of paradise at least paradise as it's as it's formulated like both i think within my text but also in the paradigms that you were outlining is it's indescribable from the, the issue of sovereignty like and, and, and sovereignty and i think it's important here to stress that when i talk about sovereignty i'm very much talking about like the like western theopolitical concept that comes out of europe and of get like christian europe specifically mm. because i think there's a separate question that can be had around say like indigenous forms of sovereignty right and like like i guess like my slightly contentious like idea there is that i i kind of feel that they're talking about a completely different paradigm and should probably use a different word
1: um i see what you're saying like, right like, like
0: yeah, i yeah. i get i get i get why like because it's it, but like the why is also part of the way that it's part of the entrapment it's part of needing to articulate being an empire your, right. yeah, like, yeah yeah it's yeah, part yeah. of needing to articulate your claims to self-ownership and self-governance like within a system in which that is the term that that right. is that is right. given to those things right but i do think that say like indigenous like indigenous american notions of like of a land relationship are like a fundamentally different paradigm. oh yeah it, yeah and like basically i just want to get that out there because i think like when i talk about sovereignty like i'm not talking about like indigenous sovereignty that's yeah that, a, i appreciate very, that that's that's a helpful yeah. qualification yeah yeah because yeah um, you're talking
1: about like almost like schmidtian like secularized like sort of yeah like,
0: yeah, like right. um yeah like so like the question like basically i think the only way forward is essentially to destroy the concept of sovereignty essentially Mm. (laughs) like how that might be possible i'm not sure um that that that's for greater minds than mine to figure out but i i think i think we need to try somehow move beyond and through um the concept of sovereignty as it's been formulated like in in kind of western theopolitical discourse like through notions of like not just like even like singularity is an aspect but i think i think the way it gets instantiated even within the democratic process is still fundamentally premised on these notions of transcendence and singularity and ownership and that i think like needs to be moved beyond if like we're going to create a world that is less violent um
1: yeah
2: um, speaking of creating a world that's less less violent um, and thinking strategically about that and what demonic alliances we might uh, create, imagine, or participate in, I'm wondering what politics do you see in the world or do you want to see in the world that harmonize with the kinds of theorization that you perform in this book? Um, for example, at the end of the book, you argue that demonized communities are shoved together as Um, part of the passing satanic or demonic empire. Dialectically, there's a chance there for those with demons to recognize possibilities for solidarity, maybe, or collective resistance. Mm. Um, Where do you see this happening or where would you like to see more of this happening?
0: Um, Everywhere, but like... (laughs) Um, So this is kind of, I guess, there's a kind of number of of aspects to that, to responding to that. And I think one is, one actually is a more theoretical, theological idea, which is the weird way that spiritual warriors get around the problem of evil, um, or like the problem of like the fact that the demons quote unquote seem to be winning, or at least don't seem to be going anywhere, which is they've constructed a paradigm in which Essentially, an, um, an omnipotent, an unstoppable force, here God or divine providence, is being stopped by a very immovable object, which is demons. Like, they are contingent, they're lacking, they, they can't resist the force of sovereign violence, and yet they seem to. They continually seem to. And it's kind of this weird way in which the solution to this is almost the idea that like the way to the way for movable objects to resist an unstoppable force is to get a lot of you together and work really really effectively (laughs) Um, (laughs) like um, collective action need for solidarity Uh, to get back to the leviathan chapter like that the, the, the binding of scales on Leviathan's back that like can pre- like create the shield wall that can prevent sovereign power sleep seeping through. Um but like there is this general question of like like I think I think demonic forms of resistance in some way need to be very like somewhat ad hoc. Like they need that there's a certain pragmatism to them in that there's this need to come together for specific political aims and specific times and specific places in a way that is fluid because like like i said earlier we we live in empire and empire is total like y- you can't resist it in totality you resist it in fractions you resist it here and there and not through like a new,
1: I, new dictatorship you know like this is sort of like yeah thing, no uh... like like
0: and I mean, like, I think this is actually interesting, because this is actually, like, the dictatorship issue, I think, gets to why I talk about demons rather than the devil, per se. Because, like, it's, it's, it's very... And Paradise Lost, like, Milton's Paradise Lost is kind of emblematic of this, is that, like, Satan falls, and he elects himself king, and it's like, it's like yeah, um, it's that way in which, like, the kind of the, the classic satanic moniker is the whole, like, I will not serve idea right, but right. like it's like I, I will not serve within that paradigm is it's kind of a declaration that says perhaps as necessary as is impossible because like you, you've refused to serve but you also can't imagine a system without a king like right. you just want to be king right and like one of the reasons I focus on demons and the plurality of demons is because I wanted a way to kind of move beyond that sense of of like just needing a better ruler or even just a different ruler like yeah this this way of emphasizing the the plethora and the plurality of of the demonic forces on on the ground as it were yeah um but there's also like in terms of a general politics of solidarity like this kind of there's a there's a strand throughout the book where i talk about kind of anti the anti-urbanist strand within spiritual warfare which kind of there's this notion within a lot of spiritual warfare texts that the only possibility for lasting change comes from this kind of inherent shared identity of a kind of proper Christianity, right. of like a like a proper orientation towards order, which they then contrast with these this kind of like they associate it with the urban, but the kind of the, the the pragmatic urban form of political activism where you have communities of difference who might come together for, like, specific pragmatic aims, whether it's to, like, pass a law or instantiate, like, a particular, like, project or whatever it happens to be, um, that then might disperse afterwards and then coalesce again, like, around another project later. Which, I mean, it admittedly does make it necessarily perhaps difficult to sustain political projects over time, but I think as a way of resisting empire um, and as a way of, like, articulating political projects it's kind of i think it's a necessity and i think it's a necessity for us all to kind of work collectively on things that are not necessarily related to us as individual identity groups or populations that may like over overall like shift the system yeah. um yeah that, that, i think
1: that makes a lot of sense and i'm like thinking like obviously we're we're recording this at a particular time as as ukraine is being invaded by russia and i just mm. like just think talking i mean uh, jonathan i think i get a sense that you're somewhat a, an online person like the way that this has <laughs> yes. has has uh has like splintered the left right where you have like all these like like you know you, you have like the full range of reactions on the left to what is going on and like ranging from oh because russia is allied with china and used to be the soviet union then like that's our that's our side of the dualistic struggle for between good and evil um you know to to like a more pragmatic acceptance of nato like there's all kinds of responses to what's going on and there's such confusion and like i wonder mm-hmm. like i contrast this moment of where there's like so much there's so much like there's a lot of there's diversity of views, on, mm. you know, on the left broadly construed. Um, there's a lot of incoherence and like the scales aren't coming mm. together on the giant sea dragon
3: <laughs> um, at, yeah. the, at the right moment. Versus yeah. Versus I mean, like, like
0: the scale the scales never come together that, on the giant sea right, dragon. Right. Yeah. That's right. but I think, I think but I think the sea is, dragon's is, actually the
1: sea is mm. actually useful because like you know where the mm. the sea dragon the scales came together for a little bit of time here was like in the uprisings of 2020 where you mm-hmm. have like a pandemic mm. that like. Like, those sorts of, like, like you know, the French Revolution, mm. they had their famines. Like, like revolutions happen when other natural forces yeah. impinge upon the well-being of populations. And, like, there was, for at least for, like, like you're saying, like, it's not going to be, for, you know, mm. a, an eternal politics. But, like, you had moments of, like, sustained solidarity and resistance. And, you know, and I don't know, I, I think about, like, sort of like uh, the lack of unity or the the, the the difficulty in finding solidarity right now and like other moments in which it's worked and i, I just reflect yeah. on like the, the leviathan i like, don't know
0: i i think i think the i think the uprisings of 2020 are really a good example because like and i'm kind of trying to write about this in a piece that i've had ongoing kind of since 2020 which was the spiritual warrior reaction to <laughs> oh, to the yeah. uprisings was um they didn't like it but there was a lot of references to like lawlessness to the spirit yeah. of antichrist to like yeah. all of you know this 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 threat to to author to american orthodoxy yeah that was like arising from this like um from this moment of collective solidarity around like around kind of cast the carceral violence of the empire state yeah. like
1: wow yeah this has been great i did have like the, probably the part one of the parts of the book that really blew me away was the description of the Islamic antichrist. And Mm -hmm. I think like, like, uh, like being living, having come of age during the war of terror, like Mm -hmm. the idea of Islamophobia is just like, you're like, you know, I went to it like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Islam bad for Christians. Right. And then I think, this is where for me, it really crystallized that like, Oh, like this is, there's a theory going on here. Like this isn't just like crazy Christians saying crazy stuff, right? Mm. Like this, like, so for me, like it really came across when, um, like someone like John Burton, who's a spirit warrior you write about, mm. like really diagnoses diagnoses like the threat posed by social justice movements. And like these people like organize everything from the founding of Islam to the like to like black power under the same stamp by this by this sign conquer kind of thing like it's yeah. all Islam even if like these people aren't like actually Muslims it doesn't matter it's like the French state like if you if you look like ethnic then you're just a Muslim like that's it's like, it's, like yeah. the way it is um and and so like so there there was that so like organizing everything like sort of connected to blackness connected to social justice under like this sort of like the demon of rage that is Islam was was interesting but then I was really struck by what they saw is like the particularly like satanic quality of this this demonic assemblage, was that it was so good at getting people to feel like sympathy for the righteousness of their claims. Um, the the quote I'll I'll read the quote. Uh, the crisis that Black Lives Matter signifies here is neither one of police violence nor racial injustice. Of course, those are those have nothing to do with it, but rather the pervasiveness of Satan's promotion of quote for sympathy, the devil's titular grand strategy. By which some churches, and Travis, we're definitely looking at you right here, have dared to promote affinity, affirmation, and agreement with those who are deviant and what is unholy, specifically homosexual activism, Black Lives Matter, abortion, or other counter-biblical movements. But, like, the idea that what makes these people satanic is that, like, man, their claims are actually—and they'll even grant that a lot of their claims, like, are justified in some sense. But, like, mm. it's the fact that they're justified and, and, like, comprehensible and, like, arousing sympathies from people is— that's the demonic part. And like, I was just like, that blew me away. That blew me away. And it's not really a question, but like that, like in terms it just showed me like the sort of, there is almost a level of self-awareness about this. Mm. Like that, like, like, the, Oh, like these stories, these media images, like a police officer slowly choking someone to death. Like that, that like does mm. something to you when you see it. And like, like people organizing politics around that, it has a pull because there's like a moral outrage about what's happening. And the spirit warriors, if I'm reading it correctly, the spirit warriors are saying the moral outrage part, that's the demonic part, or even the satanic part. Um, so yeah, yeah, again, not, not, not super, not like a, not, not totally a question, but, <laughs> but no, like, just but like a total, like, yeah. wow, wow, but wow, it, it wow.
0: Is, it is fair. Cause like, that's definitely, th- there was this really interesting dynamic that I think especially comes out with the discussion of Islam, like in the way that the Islamic antichrist is framed is this, this, it's it's partly intentional and partly unintentional is this way that they end up validating the claims of the people that they're like opposing or subjugating essentially um but you get this in a lot of the discussions from um individuals for example who've been like missionaries in in muslim countries or like elsewhere they'll talk about like I totally get why these people hate America like in their mind view like you know they yeah, they yeah, yeah. they understand they understand the projects of like systemic racism at home and like imperial overreach and subjugation abroad and they understand that as being this force of righteous anger that is also simultaneously demonic yeah and like Sometimes they try and nuance it by saying that like, oh, the rage is is fine, but then the devil comes along and like co-opts it. but it's like that that distinction is not always present or even like pre- or even like sensibly articulated by these people right. Yeah. So there's this sense in which like, yeah, like like the spirit of Islam, like quote unquote within this, which is the spirit of the spirit of this kind of righteous, anti-imperialist like anti-racist violence and rage that's right. just kind of outpouring from like yeah because like it's it, I, I talk about it being like the powder keg of oppression basically right. and like right. i talk about it like specifically as anti-christ like in the sense that like this is the reaction to not not specifically to christ but to the form of christ that these people are articulating yeah. this like right this constant suppression that eventually just explodes. Um yeah. The Christ of birth
1: of a nation that appears at the yeah. very end once once the uh, black people have been kept from voting, right? You know, to sort of bless the the progeny of, of like mm. the uh the white eugenesis. Yeah.
0: Totally, yeah. yeah. But I like I, I think there's this really interesting and like unsettling but interesting like ambivalence in a lot of the texts that write about the Islamic antichrist. And there's this sense of like it being both Demonic, but also kind of correct, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. And that yeah. Like, uh, which I yeah, think yeah, is, yeah, yeah. But I think that also is part of the tension when they talk about Islam in general. Is like one of one of the key one of the things I talk about in the book, and one of the key ways that spiritual warriors attempt to deal, quote unquote, kind of deal with Islam, is through the strategy of incorporation. Like, they, they frame it as, like, this kind of demonic eye view of, like, Christianity, essentially. Right, it's like, right. It's essentially, like, it's just Christianity, but upside down in the way they construct it. Right, but right. the thing is, by doing that, they also make it, like, and it's worth pointing out here that their construction of Islam and of Islamic eschatology is very, very, like, specific and
3: right.
0: um not necessarily inaccurate, but, like, Islamic eschatology is very varied and very broad and they are specifically selecting the version of it that can mirror Christianity and ignoring versions that that don't. And a specific version of Christianity at that. But the thing is, like, through doing that within their own logics, they also make it that Christianity might just be reverse Islam. Right, right, right. like, (laughs) right. like, Like, it could be that the islamic version is the right one like within their framework like they've incorporated it but they've incorporated it in a way that's like wait we're claiming this is just like the kind of perverse mirror image of our eschatology and obviously they they believe they're right because they're like within that but like there's nothing structurally to say that like what if what if you were wrong like what if they were the ones that were right Right. And I mean, this um, is the thing,
1: like, like there's, there's like this problem, this epistemological problem all the time. What for Christians, and I, I studied like 16th century Germans, like mm. sort of like raging about liturgical changes in Protestantism. But like the appealing to the idea that like the world is a funhouse mirror. Nothing is as it appears. Everything's a false appearance. And you're like, well, then how do you know your claims are justified, my friend? And, and mm. like you get into that problem of like, you know, I really know this. Like, well, I really know this, too. Um, and it's completely different. And, and this is something I saw, I think, especially in the, the Leviathan chapter where it's like, and this is also like with Katsuko too, Mm -hmm. where it's like God and the devil, like start you sort of start losing, keep losing track of which is which. Um, and you know, like, yeah, and this is what you're saying about Islam being this sort of like reverse mirror image of Christianity and this stuff. It's like through like the, you know, like according to the logic of these people, like, yeah, it becomes really hard to actually pin down what's what.
0: Yeah. And, like, and I think that, I think the way that, the way that they kind of simultaneously seem to validate the, the their construction of Islam while also invalidating it kind of points to that, that yeah. larger issue of, like, of, like, the, the ambivalences within their own cosmology, essentially, yeah. and their own relationship to kind of US empire as a practice that is, like, simultaneously righteous, but also violent, but also... And like right. generates a backlash that is both evil but also are completely understandable within yeah. their within the narrative. Yeah, playback.
1: yeah, and this gets to something else we didn't really we talked about a little bit, but like, right, like when we say like, oh, like uh, the backlash is understandable. But at the same time, like, the reason you're oppressed is your own fault and your own, your own, mm. like, country or people's possession by demons. Like, you know, like, Mexicans have, because of Quetzalcoatl, the Mexicans are possessed by a Leviathan. Or, yeah. or the example I've been thinking about, because I've been teaching on the Haitian Revolution over the last two weeks, is, like, the Boa Caiman ritual mm-hmm. in Haiti. And how, like, that, that's, like, that's seen as, like, where the Haitian people, the, the Haitian people, like, like you know, sell their souls to the devil um and and you know that's like a pat robertson thing he does that in 2010 and you and you you touched on this but something that's interesting is that like even bahamian haitians who are pentecostal or protestant like Mm. buy into that too like sort of getting into like the way in which yeah yeah it's
0: it's a really i always found like i i find the whole discourse around haiti like fascinating in that once in the sense that it's like it's both used to kind of justify like centuries of like colonial and imperial oppression that has like kept the nation impoverished like for hundreds of years um but it's also like it's like oh like they sided with the devil because god wouldn't free them from slavery and it's like i, I failed to see how the devil is bad in this equation <laughs> <laughs> right like, <laughs> right it's, it's 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 that it's that weird way where it's like and, and i guess this happens with the constructions of islam as well and the constructions of like of black and the sort of demonological constructions of black lives matter is it's like it's like oh they turn to these demons because god wouldn't help them and it's like well why wouldn't god help them then right like, it's, a, it's because like they, you, need like you, be, you've they kind need of, to be you've, like yeah you've, yeah, you've, you've, you've you... dodged a step in your like analysis here of like oh Yeah, like, God wouldn't free them from the French, so they they made a pact with demons to free them. And it's like, okay, that sounds sounds legit like, like <laughs> which is like
1: not to mention that like leading revolutionaries were like catholics or like catholic visionaries right you know I mean, and yeah, of course like, of I mean, course I mean, and of course like for the spirit warriors like well like that's not really christianity either but like or, you know yeah. yeah like you know i mean like, it depends. Making, yeah. like some,
0: sometimes sometimes they're fine with catholics and sometimes they're not yeah, yeah, yeah. it depends a lot on the US it's
1: different right, it's internally like, diverse. I, I take that yeah. point for sure for sure. And
0: like sometimes they're like, oh, we don't mind Catholics, but Pope Francis is evil. Slash the right, Catholic yeah. Church is evil, like as an institution. Yeah. The, the like. throne
1: is vacant. The vacant throne theory. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, okay.
2: So, Jonathan, thank you so deeply for this incredibly stimulating book. It was so exciting to read. You stretched me intellectually <laughs> at several moments. And that was... That was what I would call in my progressive Christian language a blessing <laughs> a demonic <laughs> blessing a curse if you will thank you for cursing me um, with this amazing work for your generosity in being willing to talk with us and explain the finer points of this I can't wait to think more on this system these systems that you've revealed I can't wait to talk to more people about what you're up to so um, from the bottom of our demonic and um Absolutely. hellish Absolutely. uh hearts thank you thank you so much for being here
0: it, it's it's been an absolute pleasure like thank you both for having me on yeah. it's it's been a joy your questions have been amazing and just thank mm-hmm. you so much for for reading the book and for engaging with it in the way that you have and also just for running a fantastic podcast which is oh, a joy you. to listen to